You're listening to. Welcome to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yu. And I'm Rira Yu. And we are here to discuss our March 2023 book club pick, Front Desk by Kelly Yang. Um, a book that's been on our radar for a very, very long time. And we're very excited to, to finally read and talk about it. Yeah, it was the 2019 Asian Pacific American Award for Literature in Children's Literature category. Um, It's also been nominated for a bunch of other awards. And like we've mentioned in our earlier episodes, um, this book has been banned um, at a couple of schools. Um, Back in like 2021, the Plain Ridge Union Free School District in New York, they banned the book saying that uh, it was being used to teach critical race theory to students <laughs> and uh, uh, was portraying police officers as racist. So parents were not very happy and it got um, contested to be removed from the school's library. But eventually they were allowed to keep the book at <laughs> school, but parents were given the possibility to opt out their children from reading Front Desk. And uh, there were other schools that banned it for similar reasons. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. what a bunch of bullcrap. I mean, it's inexplicable to me how and why this book would be on any ban list just because it, you know, portrays some truths that certain parents don't want their kids to know about. But I mean, come on, it's 2023. And the fact that this book has become like the flashpoint of like the book banning conversation um, for like very petty reasons, right? I mean, most book banning is for petty reasons. It's never for actual legitimate reasons. <laughs> yeah, that is true. Um, so I guess before we get to our discussion, um, just our quick standard spoiler warning, we are going to be discussing the entirety of Front Desk, including all plot points. So if you have not read the book yet and don't want to be spoiled about the plot, um, take this opportunity to pause our podcast, um, read the book, and then come back and listen to our discussion. Um, We'll be here waiting for you. Um, But with that said, um, let's get started. Yeah, so Front Desk is a middle grade book that came out in 2018, and it was released by Scholastic. And the book is about 10-year-old Mia Tang and her family, who, after a couple of years struggling financially, are hired to manage a motel in Anaheim, California. Now, Anaheim is not the Anaheim that we know today, because this book is set in the 1990s. So Anaheim in Orange County, there's full of Asians now, but that was not the case back then. Is Anaheim? I, I know their surrounding cities are. I don't know about Anaheim proper. I don't know. I mean, I guess, like, I I just kind of lump Anaheim and the neighboring towns just all together. <laughs> I mean, if we're talking about Cerritos, Buena Park, um, like... Irvine. Irvine, then yeah. Um, Fullerton. I don't, I don't know about Anaheim itself. But um, again, I don't. I don't live there. Um, I know that Orange County, even given its very like Asian status, it's still pretty white and conservative. It's like the conservative bastion of Southern California. 
Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, but you know, at the core of the story is about Mia and her family chasing that American dream. And you know, this is the first middle grade novel that we've read, not for the podcast, but for a book club pick. And I was, as I was reading the book, I was amazed on how many like important timely topics were being touched in this book. Like, I can't imagine being like a sixth grader reading this book for the first time. Yeah, I mean, when I think to, think back to the books that were assigned in my classrooms, um, the closest thing was Farewell to Manzanar. <laughs> um, we, I really did not see that many books that even touched upon like modern day, or I guess like even though this takes place in the 90s, um, just like immigrant struggles like from this decade or 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 like the last decade it's always been like like really really far back like the railroad times or like chinese people (laughs) were treated badly and i'm like chinese people are treated badly today (laughs) yeah and for me like reading books like feral the manzanar and like raising the sun and the books that touch on civil rights and minorities those weren't really assigned to us until high school. And even then, you know, a lot of our experience reading about poverty and economic um, oppression come from reading stories about poor white people, like reading Steinbeck and, and authors like that. Yeah, I didn't really get a lot of the Asian immigrant experience growing up. And I know that was like a big motivation for Kelly Yang. Uh, she said that she said in an interview, I don't know what publication it was, but she said that she wanted to write a book where she could talk about her uh, childhood experiences and her financial struggles uh, and be able to tell that to her kids without uh making it super depressing, but also like not sugarcoating it. And I think she did a really good job yeah, in this I book. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I love the most is the entire book is told through Mia Tang's perspective. And it was fun to see the immigrant struggle seen through the eyes of a child, um, especially one that's as positive and like go-getting as Mia Tang. Like she acknowledged that their situation was not the best. But she was making the most of it and having a great time, at least, um, or at least trying to. You know, she starts to deal with things like bullying and feeling shame for not being um, well off. But the positive voice of Mia Tang really, like, it was probably one of the best parts of, of this novel for me. Yeah, Mia is such an optimistic and feisty character. Actually, a lot of Front Desk is based on Kelly Yang's own experience. Like I said, uh, she wrote this book for uh, her kids and to talk about her childhood. And um, her parents actually did manage a hotel. She did struggle with poverty. And um, I remember like in an interview, she said that she actually did put a banana peel on her head to like see what she would look like with blonde hair. So there's like a lot of small moments in this book that is actually rooted in her real life experiences. And you could really tell that it comes from like a very like painful, poignant moment in history in our childhood. Cause I feel like we all have that, um, have that growing up, you know, like we have like those very singular moments where we're like, yeah, I mean, that scene was pretty like it was pretty heartbreaking to see a child think that way because of the environment that they're in. Um, But can you imagine what this book would have been like if it was told through the perspective of like the mom, like then you would have your like sad times immigrant story, right? 
Uh, yeah, an important uh, distinction that we have to make is that uh, Mia, our protagonist, she emigrated to the States uh, around like two years ago. So it's only been like a very short amount of time where she had to learn English. That's very different from a lot of um, Asian American experiences where people either were born and raised here or uh, came much later in their life for their education. So this is a very different type of um, immigrant experience. Yeah, I mean, these are what I guess we would call these days 1.5 generation immigrants who who came to America when they've already kind of established their personalities and made connections in, in their homeland. Um, I mean, this is very similar to how you came to America, right, Rira? I would call myself Generation 1.75 because <laughs> I came when I was three years old. So I attended like preschool. So I attended school at the same time mm. as most American kids. Um, and also, I don't have any memories of me living in Korea, whereas Mia, you know, she has memories of uh, playing, not playing, because she does mention in this book that Chinese kids don't play. They have so much stuff to do <laughs> after school. But she has memories of um, hanging out with her cousins and just like how her neighborhood was. She has like, like a lot of fond memories of China. And um, I would say like she does have a very like rose tinted uh, glasses on when it comes to looking back on her time in China. But I think that is like very natural for people who come here. Yeah, I mean, I think that's also part of her being like still a child, right? Still someone who sees the world as a place of opportunity, sees her parents as people who, you know, know what they're doing and knows what's best. And I think it did remind me of my own family where when I was growing up, I never felt really the poverty um, even though for a while we were, you know, according to my dad, we were struggling for a few years. But, you know, as a child, I didn't really feel it. It was just, you know, it was just how we lived. Right. Um, and hearing my dad talk about it now, now that we're adults and like he's explained to me all like, all the struggle that we actually were going through. It's like it really puts into perspective how much sacrifice it takes for people like me as parents to even scrape together like a place to stay, right? Because one of the reasons why they take this motel job, even though the terms were... Horrendous. Yeah, is because it comes with a place for them to stay that they can also work at. And that, for them, like, it's it means providing me a place to sleep and, like, a home, like, a stable home for her to go to school. And I'm sure for them, like, that's a lot of the reason why they decided to take that job. Yeah, and what I really liked about Mia's character is that, you know, she knows the struggles that her parents are going through but at the same time like she you know doesn't resent like being poor she actually does like a lot to help out her parents i mean this book is called front desks she runs the front desk and um she does it because she knows that her parents like don't really have that much time to clean all of the room rooms in the motel and she's like this is something that i can do like it comes very naturally to her um and she like solves a lot of like problems at the motel. And I'm like, I can't imagine uh, like myself as I, I was trying to like picture what I was like when I was 10 years old. <laughs> and of course, like I was a lot more mature than a lot of other kids because, you know, my mom didn't speak English. So I had to do a lot of like very, uh, very much. I was like parentified. But it's very different because Mia is still allowed to be a kid 
and um, she kind of sees it as like this, not an adventure, but like just a chance to, you know, help out and to grow and be independent. And that's what made this book not depressing, (laughs) despite (laughs) all of the hardships that uh, she goes through, because there's a lot of hardships that happened. Uh, I was really surprised by how much Kelly was able to cram into this book, like all of these different immigrant experiences, because um, in the book, her parents do like provide shelter for uh, Chinese immigrants who, you know, need a place to stay for the night. And I was like, that's a very clever way to show the range of experiences that uh, Chinese immigrants go through. Yeah, especially because, you know, people who've worked in Asian and Asian American media uh, for any amount of time are very familiar with like the modern minority myth, which is the idea that Asians are just really good at immigrating and are successful at it. And this story takes place in the 90s. And the history of Asian Americans in Asian America is the history of migration and migration patterns. And um, those coming from China and Asia in this time period is very different. Like they weren't coming for the high skilled jobs that the immigrants that came in the seventies and eighties did. Um, those jobs weren't here for them, even if they were skilled. And I think, you know, Mia mentioned several times that her mother was an engineer back in China, um, but they weren't able to find those jobs. And so they had to end up doing like more menial labor, like working in a kitchen or running a motel. And That is the story of a lot of immigrants that come here because America is kind of seen as this ultimate dream where, you know, you can move up in the in the world. You can move up faster than your home country, uh, that there is more freedom. And of course, you know, freedom means different things to other people. Yeah, and when they got here, they they discovered freedom also means the freedom to exploit workers, and you know they run into all sorts of exploitation. And you know part of part of that story thread of all of these other Chinese immigrants who came to stay at the motel for a few nights as a place to rest is learning the stories of the different ways um, Chinese immigrants and immigrants in general gets exploited for labor. Right? We have stories of someone who gets abused during work and underpaid. Um, stories of a a cook who gets tricked into giving their boss his ID and passport so that he can't leave. Yeah, and I thought it was okay. So I thought I thought this was really interesting when I was looking up reviews for this book. Uh, I forgot who reviewed it, but they said it was really ironic that uh, for a book that's supposed to show positive representation for uh, Chinese immigrants, uh, there were a lot of quote-unquote, bad Chinese people in this book, um, like Mr. Yao. And it's like, you, like, it really, it's like, if you wanted to go against the stereotype of uh, Asian Americans being greedy, then, like, why did you, why did you include a Mr. Yao? And I was like, okay, well, I think a lot of people who are outside of the immigrant community don't understand that we do exploit each other. We do see each other as competition. And we do buy into uh, white supremacy because that is a way to uh, move up in America. So I thought it was a very realistic 
portrayal of yeah. exploitation. I mean, let's talk about Mr. Yao, who is probably the closest thing this book has to a villain, right? And he Oh, I he's mean, a straight he up villain. Yeah, there is no redemption for him at all. Like when Mia's mom and dad first come into contact with him, like to follow up with the the lead to run his motel, you already like so many red flags already. This guy is just not on the level. And the thing is, like, there's a lot of red flags you can see right away because I mean, I don't know about you, but like as like a Chinese American um, who has interacted with people, maybe not as extreme as Mr. Yao, but definitely like engaging in sketchy business practices um yeah they they're betting on the fact that you don't know your rights and you know a lot of the verbal promises that they make that's not exactly what is written in the contract and the reason why they do this is because they can get labor for cheap like that is the main reason why i mean Working, quote unquote, under the table is something that is pretty common in like, I mean, I'm just speaking from my own experience, like Chinese enclaves specifically. There are not a few restaurants um, where I grew up that have been under investigation for tax fraud uh, because they because they even were paying their employees under the table because they've been doing sales outside of their regular channels. Um, they were underreporting their taxes and they got caught. <laughs> And I think there's just this innate um, need to win at all costs um, that some of these business owners have that like, it's pretty like it's capitalism, but also like Chinese culture. I don't know. It's and also very, it's, it's very American, right? To like, want to. Yeah. I mean, Mia, Mia makes this point, like in the book, she's like, everything is about money in America. Nothing is free. And I completely agree because if you compare us to like the communal uh, culture in a lot of other countries like you know like she talks about how like in her old neighborhood in China like there was like a popsicle man who would give her a popsicle in trade of like oh what did you learn in school whereas here she has to give money in order to like get information or get any sort of cooperation and Um, I think community, like ethnic communities, there's like two different sides to it. One, it can provide a lot of shelter and resources. When immigrants come here to this country, um, you know, they go to these ethnic conclaves first because that's where people speak their language, understand their culture, and maybe, you know, get the know-how to start a business or um, get loans. I mean... Loan sharks are bad, but, um, you know, they are more prone to get money from their communities as opposed to banks. And then you have the other side where you are being exploited by your own people um, because, you know, they know that you don't have a choice other than to um, work under the table or just to take whatever you can get. And uh, it's really funny because my dad has told me ever since I was like, maybe in high school, he was like, oh, when you start applying to jobs, don't work for an Asian boss because they will take advantage of you. And I'm like, but you're an Asian boss. (laughs) Like you run your own company. Does that mean you treat your workers poorly? But um, his reasoning was that, well, you're, you know, you're a Korean American girl. So if you work for a Korean boss, for example, they're going to expect you 
to work a little bit harder because you're part of the quote unquote community. And uh, because you're a girl, they're going to take advantage of you because, um, you know, there's there's like stereotypes in play. It's very interesting how self-aware a lot of Asians (laughs) and Asian immigrants are when it comes to exploitation of our own people. Yeah, and something that Front Desk also explores is the fact that the Chinese immigrant community is also not a monolith. Like, it did not escape my notice that uh, Mr. Yao is a Taiwanese businessman. And, you know, in class, his son, Jason, um, wanted to make it clear that he was not Chinese, he was Taiwanese. And I think especially in the 90s, there was definitely a prejudice against the more recent Chinese immigrants who tended to be less well-off compared to, again, the ones that came in the 70s and 80s. And you can definitely see that like people like Mr. Yao, who's still a jerk, um, probably felt it was okay to exploit these people because they were, in their eyes, you know, more provincial, less educated, less sophisticated, and you know, lower on the total pole than they are. Yeah. Um, and there's a scene where Mia is playing the piano and Jason observes her and he says, wow, where did you learn how to play piano aren't you poor and she gets really angry she's like poor people can do things too poor people can want things and that is like i feel like that is the stereotype that a lot of uh richer immigrants uh may think of they're like oh you're from the mainland like during this time when when uh china wasn't as developed it's like oh so you're poor so you're used to being poor we can exploit you you should just bow down to us because you should, you're at yeah, the bottom of the You should be glad road. that I'm even giving you money to work for me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, speaking of Jason, um, I know he has, like, oh my a God, what redemption, a, what, like- <laughs> a, what a jerk. Oh, my gosh. Like, I know he's a kid. I'm just like, kids change. Like, I've definitely changed growing up. But it was very hard for me to have any, like, empathy for him but <laughs> especially when he got all petty for like being turned down <laughs> when he like tried to force his feelings on the mia i was like oh bro that's not how you no. do it man this is well, why like you're in you sixth teach grade. your kids consent yeah <laughs> i mean he's not in sixth grade though they're like in fourth grade are they and then the sixth graders are like the bullies oh, right 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 that's a lot of the classroom scenes really made me laugh because um you know, Jason and Mia are the only Asian kids in their class, and they're constantly lumped together. They're like, oh, why don't you get married? Because you guys are, like, both Asian. <laughs> um, and there's a scene where uh, they are learning about China's first dynasty, and there is a very uh, exaggerated portrait of the first emperor with, like, very slanted eyes. And uh, all of the kids are, you know, making slanty eyes. Don't we love that? Like, I love how that's a universal experience for a lot of Asian Americans. But um, just the way how kids can be so mean in class just because uh, you're different or you come from a different place than they do. Yeah. And another way that Mia gets bullied is kids making fun of her clothes, which um, I don't know if you've ever been through um, getting dressed by your parents way too old. Um, I think I definitely I definitely wore some weird shit until like 
fourth grade. But something that was really relatable to me was uh, Mia describing going out to shop and um, her mom finding a really good deal on like the floral pants that she wears. And like, that's exactly how my dad shops even to this day, even though like we're we are, you know, we're better off now than we were uh, when I was a kid. But he still loves to shop the deals. Yeah, a totally different experience for me. I mean, my parents like love deals as well. My mom loves shopping, but she is more like Jason's mom who would shop at Macy's. Um, That wasn't always the case, but um, yeah, it's not an experience that I could really relate to. I never got bullied for my clothes. In fact, uh, that was probably the only thing that a lot of kids liked about me because <laughs> my parents did spend a good amount of money on clothes because, you know, they were like, you need to wear nice things in order for people to know that you come from a nice family and therefore you, like, deserve respect. And my mom would always, like, yell at me because I would choose to wear, like, the same outfit regularly. And she's like, you have so many clothes. Like, why? <laughs> it's like, why do you keep wearing, like, the same ugly thing and now she's thrilled because i'm back to wearing more feminine clothes and she could just dress me however she wants <laughs> it's yeah it's very interesting every single time i like go down she she has like a boatload of clothes because that is that is what she does that's how she expresses her love so my experience is aligns more with Jason's experience as much as that hurts me. It's just like, oh no, I'm more (laughs) like Jason (laughs) in terms of my, my childhood. Um, But it goes to show that I wasn't, I wasn't the same as Jason. In fact, I was bullied growing up. I mean, um, Jason gets a little better as the story goes along. Right. I think he, um, I think he does feel bad. And I do love that the most savage burn that um it's not even a burn, is it a burn? But but the most savage thing that like Mia said to him was like, you don't have to be your dad. Which like even he understands that his dad's a dick. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is kind of going on a tangent, but one of the meanest things that Jason did to Mia was steal her green sparkly pencil <laughs> that her dad got her. Um, and the context for this pencil is um, Mia's, Mia and her mom fights because Mia's mom says, you need to focus on math because you will never be as good uh, at English as the white kids who, you know, were born and raised here. Um, and she says, you're a bicycle. The other kids are cars. And after this scene... Her dad takes her to, you know, this shop that has very expensive stationery and pens. And she gets this pencil from her dad. And it's like $5.99, very expensive for them. And he says, you're not a bike. So he's encouraging her, hey, if you love writing, then keep writing. And Jason steals this fucking pencil. And I was like, I'm about to rip this boy <laughs> in half. How dare he? And then the t- and he has the audacity 
to lie to the teacher. Okay, and the teacher does the whole like King Solomon test for the pencil, I know. which I is was, like the what? second. The second she was like, "Oh, I there's only one thing left to do. We're gonna have to break the pencil in half." And I was like, "No." <laughs> teacher kind of sucked. She obviously is not a good teacher because anyone can see through Jason's bullshit. Like it wasn't yeah, even yeah. like, obviously she's and, the distressed one. Uh, uh, yeah. And it's just like, not to have gender like stereotypes, but it's a green sparkly mechanical pencil. How many times have you seen like boys have those? <laughs> like most of the times they don't even have pencils. They like freaking steal from you because they don't have like a cute pencil case full of, Morning Glory pencils. I will say, five ninety nine is an absurd amount of money to drop on a mechanical pencil, even back in the nineties. I think I'm looking back at all like the, the quote unquote nice pencils I've had back then, and I don't think I ever spent more than like maybe three bucks for like two ninety nine. Like five ninety nine is like a nice pencil. Like even for, yeah, like, five ninety nine is is standards. quite a lot. Yeah, and I've had a lot of Morning Glory pencils where I was. <laughs> tricked into buying them because i'm like oh it's so cute and it has like charms on it but then those pencils always break so easily within like like within a year it's it's just broken <laughs> were you but, a 0.05 millimeter or 0.07 millimeter lead person oh 0.05 oh, it's just too fine for me I, I like a little bit more more thickness also my handwriting sucks so having a thicker lead does help a little bit too yeah but that teacher like yeah like let's talk about the teacher because um <laughs> i mean i don't really have many thoughts about the teacher besides the fact that she was kind of a bad teacher um i mean even in the way that she treated jason especially me in the class like you can tell that she was probably trying her best to like treat them in a colorblind way but that's really not how you should be like approaching like even having like diverse kids in your class you know one of the things that happens in this book is you know mia writes a short story because that's a that, that's like a class assignment that she gets and she's like oh my god like you know i think i wrote a pretty good story and she flips over her um her returned essay and she gets a C minus and it's covered in red marks and exclamation points where the teacher's like, grammar, why aren't you proofreading? This doesn't make sense. And I was just like, she's an immigrant. She's only been here for two years. She's a fourth grader. How are you grading it or grading her so <laughs> harshly uh, without considering like her uh, experience? Like, why aren't you offering extra help? Why aren't you giving her, like, constructive criticism? Just from reading the classroom scenes, I'm like, okay, wow, there is, like, no accommodation at all for people who are not native English speakers. And it, you know, like, it reminded me of a lot of my experience and a lot of... um other immigrant experiences where they first come into this country. And if you don't speak or write uh, perfect English, you're immediately considered like second class citizens or you're stupid. And uh, I remember I used to get C's on my writing homeworks and it was really discouraging. Yeah. Yeah. And Kelly does mention the difference between like native English speakers and non-native English speakers a lot. And, you know, it is true that language fluency 
is often conflated with intelligence, right? If you can't communicate your thoughts, you're automatically considered not as bright as someone who can. The The ironic thing is that is like inversely conflated when like say Americans travel to other countries and assume other people are are dumb because they don't speak English. Even though if we try to speak like say another language, we probably sound like the third grader. Yeah, yeah. There's a scene where Mia's mom is taking a photo for this couple, and uh, she says uh, "eggplant" as mm-hmm. as she takes a photo because in in Chinese it it's kind of like cheese mm-hmm. the way that we say it here to make you smile. Mm-hmm. And the uh, white woman that she's taking a picture of says, "Oh, it's eggplant, not eggplant," and you should really be saying cheese instead of eggplant, as if Mia's mom is very uneducated and stupid. And it's like, that's totally not the case. This is her <laughs> second language. She's She was an engineer in her home country. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that was one of the few, actually surprisingly few, um, examples of like a terrible racist white person in this book um, that, you know like we mentioned is in the center of a lot of book banning conversations. And, you know, every time something happened, I was like, is this, is this the reason that this book is being banned? But I mean that. And also I, like I mentioned earlier that uh, people were not happy with how the police officers were portrayed as racist. So we can get into that. (laughs) So uh, the motel has weeklies, people who are not just staying for the night, who are long-term residents at motels. And this is pretty common for uh, low-income uh, people who can't afford to rent apartments. And one of the weeklies is a guy named Hank, who is African-American. He works at a gas station. And um, there's an incident where one of the um, one of the reg there's an incident where a guest's car gets stolen and the police officer, instead of, you know, following up on other clues, immediately hones in, immediately goes after the black guy uh, without considering any other possibility. And this is Mia's first glimpse into how prejudice plays into uh, black people's daily lives. And it's not just the police officer either. It's Mr. Yao, who's like, I told you not to let black people into the hotel or yeah. bad people into the hotel. He uses like, the euphemism bad people, which I, it sucks that I immediately knew what he was talking about. Right. Um, and yeah. like that comment you said about someone, someone saying, oh, it paints like Asian people in a bad light. I mean, anti-blackness in like Asian communities is something that has... It's been around for a long time, you know. It's not like not everyone is like this, but it definitely does exist, right? The colorism, like colorism in general, exists in all of our societies. And I did yeah, appreciate I was really, that. I was really surprised that Mia's parents were prejudiced against <laughs> Hank because they are, you know, recent immigrants. Yeah, well, Mia's parents—they're shown as people with a lot of empathy, which which is nice. Um, it's it's good to have an example of that juxtaposed against like everyone else like the one security guard from the rival motel who has like a running list of all black customers um like a literal blacklist of all black customers that guy sucked yeah and he passed that list on to other businesses 
and um yeah I was like, anti-blackness is a real thing in the Asian community. And it shows that uh, there are people in the Asian community that align themselves with white supremacy in order to get ahead in life. Uh, and also to be seen as, quote unquote, one of the good ones. Yeah. And in the end, we find out that the car wasn't even stolen. It was just insurance fraud. It was just insurance fraud. Yeah. Like, I immediately knew that it, w- it was insurance fraud. Um, but I thought it was, like, a good sense of drama because I... Mia is, Mia, like, makes it her mission <laughs> to find this car. Yeah. To find the culprit. I mean, I didn't pick up on the, this is insurance fraud threat until, like, at the very end. So I was actually along for the ride um, with Mia's little, like, detective journey as she sends out her you know, newly made Chinese immigrant friends to go do investigating for her. Yeah, and... This whole incident causes Hank to lose his job at the gas station because uh, it causes a commotion because the police officer is following up and they're asking questions and the boss gets spooked. It's like it's not good for business. And he's unable to get jobs anywhere else because of the little blacklist that's been uh, passed around in in the local neighborhood. And also um, it's. Like, also, there is another uh, incident that, you know, unfortunately, you see how uh, Black people are treated in this country. It's when Mia's mom gets violently attacked um, during the night because of um, some robbers. And Hank goes after these robbers and um, attacks them because, you know, they attacked Mia's mom. And there happened to be a police officer there, and he gets arrested with everybody else. And he pleads guilty to assault because he's like, there, there's no way a jury is going to rule on my side. And it's just how Black people are treated. And Mia is like, that's not fair. That's not okay. And uh, she learns like why reference letters are important and why... Uh, Hank will never get a reference letter because he has now a criminal record. And I thought it was like a very important point in the book because I wonder how many kids do have these difficult conversations with Black people on a daily basis. I'm pretty sure they don't, considering um, (laughs) a lot of the book banning stuff that happened around this book. Yeah, I thought Kelly Yang did a really good job with um, showing anti-blackness in the Asian community with through through Hank. Yeah, maybe a little too well because you know discussions of themes like this is probably why um, this book is on all those ban lists. Even though, I mean, they're very necessary conversations and a very accessible way to talk about these difficult topics with kids. It just it sucks that parents are afraid of like their children learning about the effects of not just like prejudice, but also like learning about injustice, learning about poverty, learning about like just how marginalized people survive. And this actually leads to the book exploring about how marginalized people deal with healthcare, right? Because after being attacked um, at the motel, Mia's mom sustains a head injury and has to go to the hospital, um, to the ER. And this is where Mia, you know, learning all sorts of life lessons this night, um, discovers the inequality of the American healthcare system. Yeah, um, 
Mia had been collecting tips in order to afford the entry fee for this contest where um, the winner gets a motel. And she has been working really hard um, keeping this money a secret. Um, But when her mother gets injured and her parents are worried about going to the ER because of cost, Mia's like, I have money. I'm willing to, you know, give up this essay contest I really want to participate in so that my mom gets to see a real doctor. And when they go, you know, the thankfully her mom is okay. She just has a concussion. Nothing, nothing is broken. But when they get the bill, the bill is $5,000. And they're like, we don't have insurance. The hospital people are just like, what do you mean you don't have insurance? How can someone not have insurance? Well, I guess we can give you a discount, but you still have to pay $3,000. And this is where um, you see how there is so much prejudice in our healthcare system because the supervisor who is, you know, uh, looking at the bill and telling them there's nothing he can do. You know, he mutters like, oh, I bet you're not even a citizen of this country. Like he kind of sees them as a waste of resources. And the only reason why uh, they're able to pay the bill is because the doctor who treated Mia's mom gets angry. He's like, can't you see that she was beaten up? Can't you see that this is the family that is struggling? How like how how can you have the heart to how can you not have any empathy for for this family and that's when the bill gets waived and they only have to pay like 150 dollars for the hospital visit which i still think is a lot of money by the way and considering this is the 90s i mean hospital visits are way more expensive than you would think they are i went to the er once um to treat like i had walking pneumonia as it turns out, and that bill was like even just for like a quick checkup was like a lot. It was way more than I thought it would be. And I mean, this was back when not everyone could get insurance, right? Like these days, you know, everyone has to have coverage either through an employer or through like an Obamacare marketplace. But back then, like if you didn't have insurance, then you're out of luck. And that's actually like another plot point, right? Like um, both. Mia and her friend Lupe can't play sports because they might get hurt. Yeah. And also, like, just taking into consideration, like, if you do get sick, if one bad thing happens to you and you do have to see a doctor, it's like, you have to think, like, is it worth it? Is it worth my family, you know, being left on the streets because we have to spend every single cent in our emergency fund or, you know, take a loan from, you know, questionable people in order to, like, pay the bill? And, um, yeah, it's just, it's another moment where young readers can see, oh, this is the hardship and prejudice a lot of poor people face in this country. Also, like, I thought it was ridiculous how, like, the supervisor was like, oh, you don't pay rent? That doesn't make sense. You guys must, you guys must have enough money to pay for this uh, hospital trip, where Mia is just like, this is the chart that you're showing us. This is the this is the medium income and we are like all the way at the bottom. Even if we paid rent, there was just no way we would be able to pay for those uh 
hospital visit. Yeah, but thanks to that doctor, um, they're able to to get out of it, which, you know, that's it's really nice. Um, I'm trying to think about how that works on the back end in accounting. Like, is there, do they have a special allowance for like special cases? Probably. Or does this get written off somewhere? Does the doctor end up, you know, paying for, for their health care? Um, but regardless of that, like, it's a really nice thing that the doctor did for them and it saved them like a, like $5,000 is more than they make in like a few months, right? Because like we mentioned, Mr. Yao's terms for um, paying them is like super exploitative, right? They make like a few bucks for every guest that stays every night. And they have yeah, to I think work. it was like $5 per guest. And I was like, $5 <laughs> per guest? What? How is that legal? It's not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought it was interesting how, okay, so you have, you see Mia struggle with, Mia's family struggle with money. And the reason why they left China was so that they could, you know, have more freedom and uh, hopefully have financial stability. And Mia finds out through a letter that her cousin wrote to her that her family in China are actually financially better, like they're better off. And, you know, she gets this idea of like, okay, well, I lost the essay writing contest for for getting the free motel. And maybe because Mr. Yao is trying to sell the motel, um, like our now rich, quote unquote, rich family members can afford to help us and get an investment in there. And I thought that was a, this was an experience that a lot of Chinese Americans may face because it really was a gamble when um, a lot of like Chinese Americans immigrated. Well, that's something here. that Kelly wrote in her afterward, right? Is like her family, along with a lot of others, left China when the economics were really bad and made a bet that their life would be better in America. And that bet didn't pan out because they watched their relatives back home benefit from China's rapid economic expansion in the late 90s, um, becoming like a global economic superpower and becoming rich along with it. And there's still definitely a lot of wealth inequality in China, but the people who did benefit from it benefit a lot. Like there's a lot of money there now because of development. And I'm sure that definitely like that, that, that takes a toll also on the people who left, right? Because they realize that like, if they had only stayed, they would have been way better off than they are now. But at the same time, like we see this in other immigrant stories. They can't really admit that they made the wrong choice, right? Because everyone back home thinks they're doing well because that's the front that they they give. And you know, that's I love that how that was portrayed through um, the reluctance of Mia's mom to call her sister for a favor because she doesn't want to admit to them that like they're struggling. It was really heartbreaking to read how um you know, Mia's mom had to put this front in order to, you know, feel like she was worth something. And it just made it, it just made it even worse when, you know, she pretty much begged her sister, like, we need this money because we don't know what our future is going to hold. Like, we don't know if the new owner of the motel is going to kick us out or keep us or if we were, we're going to be able to stay at the motel in, in terms of like residency. And her sister's like, well, you know, I can't give you the money because we're saving it for a Beijing apartment for our son. And mind you, 
Mia's cousin, their son, is like 10 years old. So whereas like Mia's family needs the money right now, they're unwilling to give it. And uh, what ends up happening is that Mia has this genius idea of finding investors in her community. So she reaches out to all of the uh, immigrants who stayed at the hotel, uh, stayed at the motel. She reaches out to uh, the local businesses around the area. Uh, she mails out letters to the people who lost the essay writing contest that she participated in. And it just goes to show like these strangers are showing more kindness than what her family had shown. And that was really that was really hard for me to read. I don't know about you, Marvin. Yeah, it's complicated because my family is a lot different. Like if my dad had called up one of my uncles or aunts because we were in a bad situation, um, I'm pretty sure my relatives would have helped us out. But it's a cultural thing too. Like families who stayed in the mainland, they suddenly have all this money, but they still also have clear memories, like the trauma of being extremely poor. And... It's kind of hard to talk about without going into things like culture, customs, and even like talking about that trauma, right? The economic trauma. And, you know, I don't want to generalize about a whole people, but it does feel like sometimes, you know, when you come out of those situations, even though you have wealth now, your first instinct is still to just take care of yourself and your people. And sometimes your people in that case does not include extended family yeah i just thought it was like I-, I know like it's not a generalization but um i just thought it was like really heartbreaking because mia like she has like all these memories of china of like her family like being super close and her neighborhood like offering help to other people and that image is broken and uh she finds like this I mean, it's also, like, great that she found this new community, this new family uh, among, like, the weeklies at the motel who's, like, very much, like, parental figures who are encouraging her to write, who really champion her. And I don't know, it just, like, kind of, it, it kind of made me sad that she couldn't have that with her blood family. And unfortunately, that is the case for a lot of people, uh, whether they're Chinese or not. But yeah, like found family was a really big theme in this book. And it was it was really nice to see, you know, people, adults inspired by Mia and her uh, gutsiness to reach out to try, even though the chances look chances are not in her favor. And it was really nice to see that, uh, you know, she sees that writing has power. Her voice has power to change people's lives. And, you know, that's pretty amazing for a 10-year-old. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much the central, like, her her coming of age is her discovering her voice and what she can accomplish through through the written word. I mean, I don't know if you read the book or if you um, listened to the audiobook, but if you did read the book, um, she writes several letters throughout the novel. And the way that it's portrayed in the book is it there's a lot of strikeouts, right? It's, you see her working through writing these letters, um, misspelling words, and like trying to get her point across. 
And I thought that was really charming to see someone who like obviously knows what she wants to communicate, but is struggling with the language and is learning and getting better at it as you go along. Yeah, I did not know that because I listened to the entire book uh, through audiobook. <laughs> and I was going to recommend people uh, listen to it because Sunny Liu, the narrator, did such a good job capturing all of the characters' voices. And wow, I did not know about the letters. That that really makes me want to like <laughs> buy the book and, and look at it again. Yeah, it's, it was a really interesting way to portray those letters um, and to see her her progress as as she goes along because, you know, she uses those letters to get one of her, you know, immigrant uncles out of a jam, right? Like the, the one employer who stole his um, passport and um, passport and ID um, gives it back because um, she threatens legal action even though she doesn't know anything about the law, right? Um, she sends a reference letter for Hank. And at first I thought, because in that letter, she mentions that he has a conviction. And I was like, oh, Mia, don't put that in the letter. You don't include that in the cover letter. Yeah, but, the, but. she she wrote like the circumstances of it. And yeah. uh, she also stapled like proof being like, this is the hospital bill. So it just, you know, also also it's just like, you know, People giving other strangers giving other people chances. You know, yeah. that is something that is very important throughout this book. I was pleasantly surprised because I half expected that because she adds her reference letter to Hank's application without Hank knowing. And so I, I was half expecting it to blow up in her face. But I'm glad it didn't. Uh, because again, this is a um, uplifting coming of age story, not in adult sad times poverty tale. <laughs> Although I did tear up at certain parts in this book. I thought I was a jaded adult, but uh, apparently there's still some soft parts of me. Um, I, you know, I teared up when her dad bought her that pencil, the scene that we mentioned earlier where he says, you're not a bike. Um, and I te- I also teared up in in like the scene where her mom apologizes or comes to very close to apologizing, <laughs> saying... You know, she's like, she said those things about Mia's English never being good enough and that she should focus on math because she's insecure about her own English. And Mia's mom being able to tell Mia, like, this isn't just about you. This is also about me. I thought that was a really nice scene and uh, cathartic. And I teared up during that scene as well. There's something about parents immigrant parents just you know saying like hey like your dream it's valid and i'm like i i feel like that is something that we are getting more of in literature these days but that was definitely not the case back then (laughs) yeah so to see that represented in uh in the book that was like that was really heartwarming. Yeah, the, those moments with me and her parents, the heartfelt ones were really nice. You know, it's it's good to have those moments in between the parts where her mom just doesn't know what to do with this precocious child who like has all these dreams and wants to be all these things and she just can't keep up because she's trying to like keep a roof over their heads. Um I also really like that we didn't really talk about the friendship between Mia and Lupe, who is uh, who becomes essentially like her best friend in school and who is the daughter of the cable repairman. 
And I love that they very quickly like tear down the facades with each other because they both lie to each other about having dogs in the big house um, before like discovering what each, what, what each other's parents does. And I also love that they're united in their hatred of um, Mr. Yao and Jason. Yeah. I, I love the fact that their friendship started on a lie. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but one of my favorite scenes with Lupe was when they go to the owner of the Thunderbirds, uh, house to inform him like oh we like checked all of the other guests and you know they don't have your car and they find out that it's insurance fraud and they're stuck in this person's house and they're like oh my god how are we going to get out and i was like wow what a dramatic turn of events wow it's turned into (laughs) this this changed the genre of the book are these kids going to get murdered (laughs) like i had like a moment of just like oh no like dread but it was it was pretty exciting to read. And that was like one of my favorite scenes with with Lupe. Yeah. I mean, Mia keeps finding herself in trouble um, because she keeps, you know, she keeps being a meddling kid, which um, is, is half the fun of, of this book is just, you know, she she doesn't stop for anything. And that takes her on so many adventures. And I was happy to see that there were there were other books uh, starring Mia Tang. Also, there's other books with um, new characters like Kelly Yang has written uh, young adult books. Uh, there's Parachutes, which, you know, explores uh, sexual assault. And, yeah. Um, Did you yeah, know you that ha- um, that's also semi-autobiographical? Yes, I do know, because we were going to interview Kelly Yang for that book, but then timing didn't work out. So um, I do remember it being semi-autobiographical. Yeah. So, um, yeah, Kelly has written a lot of books now uh, that explores the Asian-American experience. And it's not just through Mia Tang. So I am really glad that she is, um, you know, exploring the canon of the Asian-American experience. Yeah. All right. So as we come to the end of our discussion of Front Desk, um, do you have any last thoughts about the book? I think it is one of the best books that I've read this year so far, even though this book came out in 2018. Um, and I re- I was really surprised by just like how much content, how much story was in such a short book, a middle grade book, um, not to mention. And I can see why a lot of uh, conservative parents were very concerned about their kids reading this book, but I think it is a very important book that teachers should put into their curriculum because it teaches kids about empathy and about like what immigrants, poor people, how poverty affects you, and just like really looking outside of their own experience. I think that is a really important message that kids should learn at a very young age. And um, yeah, I'm just like grateful that this book exists. I'm just thinking about like, if I got to read this when I was 10 years old, that would have made like a tremendous uh, impact on my life uh, as someone who, who also liked writing and her parents were not very happy about that. <laughs> so I feel like I would have related to uh, Mia's character quite a bit. And it was really nice that Mia had a good relationship with her parents, you know, like they were affectionate. And that's not something that uh, I grew up seeing in literature, because obviously there weren't a lot of Asian uh, middle grade books, but also just like, personally, that's not something that I saw a lot. So it was great to see that in fiction. 
Uh, so I really liked uh, Front Desk, and I recommend people to give it to their kids. <laughs> yeah, um, I really enjoyed reading this book as well. Um, the character of Mia is just such a refreshing character, so positive, so um, optimistic, even when she's living in like less than ideal circumstances. And I agree, it's definitely something that we all could have used growing up. And I'm glad that kids these days have this resource. It does suck that some people see this representation of like real social and cultural issues and see it as a threat. Um, but the fact that this book is like a flashpoint says a lot about how well Kelly portrays and writes about these issues. And it's something that I have definitely given this book to my nephews and nieces, and um, I'll probably continue to do so as the younger ones get into reading age. So um, thank you to Kelly Yang for writing such a great book and such a great series. And, you know, we hope you keep doing it for as long as you can. Yeah, uh, we have a comment from Goodreads uh, from our book club member, Danielle, and she said that she read the first uh, two books and uh, that this is a great reminder that she needs to read book three and four. Uh, she said it was very approachable as it's both written from a 10-year-old's perspective and it's semi-autobiographical from Kelly Yang's own experiences. And Danielle also said it's striking how many things didn't change in the struggles of Chinese immigrants, even though the story of Front Desk is set in the 90s. So, yes, I agree with all of those points. It was very refreshing to read from a 10-year-old's perspective because, like Marvin said, can you imagine if this was written in Mia's mom perspective? Not as happy. Definitely not as hopeful. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Danielle, for your feedback. As always, if you have read our book club picks, um, let us know on Goodreads and we'll try to get your feedback onto our podcast like so. Uh, but with that... Um, That'll do it for our discussion of Front Desk by Kelly Yang, our March 2023 book club pick. Um, thank you all so much for um, listening with us. And you know, if you have any additional thoughts about what we discussed, um, please let us know on Goodreads. We'd love to hear from you. Um, but with that, we are now into Q2 of 2023. Um, April is upon us. Um, Rebra, what are we reading for this month? So we are reading Vera Wong's Unsolicited Advice for Murderers by Jesse Q. Sutanto, who is the author of Dial A for Aunties. Uh, this book is about a 60-year-old self-proclaimed tea expert, Vera Wong, who enjoys nothing more than sipping a good cup of Wulong tea and doing some healthy detective work on the internet. So um, I, I just laughed at that because internet sleuths. <laughs> uh, but when Vera wakes up one morning to find a dead man in the middle of her tea shop, it's going to take more than a strong cup of tea to fix things. So in Jesse Kisantanto is such a fun writer. Dial A for Aunties was hilarious. So I'm really excited to read this book. Yeah, I mean, we talked to Jesse for Dial A for aunties i haven't read her subsequent books but i'm very excited this is her latest uh, mystery novel and the premise just sounds pretty amazing uh so um excited to dive back into another murder mystery with you Rira. i guess and... it is i i guess it is murder mystery but i would say like it's murder comedy <laughs> at this point all right well we're looking forward to discussing that book with all of you at the end of april but that'll do it for this episode of books and boba thank you so much for listening and we'll see you all next time Bye, everybody. Bye. File your taxes. <laughs>
Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Rira Yu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Phil Yu, and you may know me from a blog called Angry Asian Man. And I'm Jeff Yang, author, journalist, and celebrity dad. We host a podcast called They Call Us Bruce, an unfiltered conversation about what's happening in Asian America. Each week or so, we host a discussion about some of the most vital and interesting topics in our pop culture and our community, bringing in guests who are shaping and informing this thing called Asian America from Hollywood to D.C. and beyond. Uh, We've got media, entertainment, food, family, politics, representation, the good, the bad, the WTF of it all. So check us out wherever you get your podcasts or at theycallsbruce.com. Peace. Peace.